At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. Today I'm speaking to a friend and colleague, Professor Adam Winstock, who is not only a psychiatrist and an addiction specialist, but also the man who set up the Global Drug Survey, which has become the definitive statement about drug use in most of the Western world. Welcome, Adam. Good afternoon, David. Pleasure to be here. It's good to talk to you. So uh, let's start off with about the Global Drug Survey. Um, I think this is your baby, wasn't it? Can you share with us why and how? It it was my baby, but it certainly now has um, parents, uncles and aunts all over the world. And um, it, it grew out of the MixMag survey, which I first ran in 1999, which was a, a wow. survey to give an opportunity to people who were involved in club drugs to have a voice mm-hmm. and for us to think about harm reduction messaging that would be useful and relevant. But in 2012, shortly after coming back from Australia, some friends in Australia and elsewhere said, oh, wouldn't it be good if we did this in other countries? And so that's what we did. And the last survey, uh, which ran at the end of 2019, was translated into ni- 19 languages, 130,000 people. And we now cover drugs, regardless whether you're a clubber, whether you're a drinker, whether you're someone that likes psychedelics. And our mission is to make drug use safer, regardless of the legal status of the drug, by helping people have honest conversations. You predicated that with the uh, comment about harm reduction. Do you want to explain to people what that actually means? Um, I think it's accepting that most people who use drugs do so for pleasure and they have a very strong interest in staying well and healthy and not causing harm to themselves or other people. And harm reduction is simply strategies and advice that allow people to engage in any activity with the least amount of harm. And we do it in virtually every aspect of our life. We wear seatbelts to stop us dying in car accidents. You know, we fortify our bread with, um, you know, thiamine and folate. And this is just recognizing that probably the biggest modifiable risk when it comes to drugs is how people choose to use them. But because they're illegal, the government doesn't let us have honest conversations. Instead, governments just go, don't take drugs, they're bad, and people are left to work it out for themselves, or the peer community figures it out for themselves. So why are drugs different then? Because I think the government has stuck to its guns that drugs are illegal because they are harmful. And it's not possible for them to say, but actually you could use those drugs much more safely if you did X, Y, and Z, because then all of a sudden people go, well, then why are they illegal? You allow tobacco and alcohol, and they're responsible for 4% of the global burden of disease each. And you give us some guidelines about how to use those a bit more safely if it's alcohol. The government would have to backtrack and suddenly change its drug laws, and they don't have much appetite for that. 
So you're doing this survey now, as you say, in, well, dozens of countries. Are you banned in any? No, we've specifically chosen not to operate in two very large countries. Let me guess, could that be Russia and China? <laughs> Strangely <laughs> enough, um, for, for obvious reasons. So I, I went to a, a conference three or four years ago and sat next to a delightful Chinese psychiatrist who was really interested. And I said, do you think we should run it in China? And he went, not unless you have a mirror site that is entirely protected and isolated because you probably get hacked. And in Russia, it's interesting. We had about 2,000 people this year do it from China. Uh, sorry, um, from Russia, sorry. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I've been reluctant to push it out in Russia is that there are so many issues facing people in Russia, particularly people who use drugs, who don't mm-hmm. have access to basic, you know, clean needles, methadone, buprenorphine, that it almost would suggest that tweaking things at the edges would make life better, while what is really needed is fundamental reform and delivery of, of basic mm-hmm. treatment services. So um, we try to operate in those places that we could have some, something useful to say. Quite, quite. But what you've taken on, you know, it's a big challenge covering everything from legal drugs to illegal drugs to prescription drugs. I mean, it's, there must be times when you feel, you know, it's, a, it's a, quite a burden, and especially as you've got to raise the money for it yourself. Yeah, so we chose very early on to be self-funded, and that was in order that we had the freedom to ask the questions that we thought were important, but most importantly that people who participated knew that the results would be seen by them before anyone else, and that there would be no filtering or sanctioning by governments. And that freedom and independence, I think, is something that is respected and gives us credibility. In terms of the scope, that is down to the incredible network of people who have now joined us. So we have expert toxicologists, criminologists, ethnographers, epidemiologists, and these people very often are are people I know or who approach me who are able to use that data in really smart and sensible ways. So the burden is one that is shared specifically among members of the core research team, which are Larissa Mayer, Monica Barrett, and Jason Ferris, but a huge international network of experts of of whom you're one, David. I'm a small one, yes. But when you started in uh, the Mixmag survey 20 years ago, did you ever envisage it would grow to be this, this enormous process and institution it is now? No, but even at that time, I suddenly realized that there was a huge gap in drug knowledge because governments were only interested in people who use drugs who were causing harm to the community or committing crime. There really wasn't an interest in the hidden masses of people who use drugs, but whom on a population basis are that pool from whom people develop problems. And I just felt that that group needed a voice and the experts from Global Drug Survey really are the people who share their information. Because although you and I know lots about drugs, I think the people who are most trusted are actually other people who use drugs. Mm-hmm. And we hopefully provide a vehicle for sharing their experience and expertise. So, so remind me again, you said that the survey, when was the first GDS? So the first GDS ran in November 2011, which would have been GDS 2012. So the the year it is released is the year that we um, kind of label it. Yeah, and that was in 
one language and the following year it was in seven and then 12, then 16, and then it's been between 18 and 20 languages every year, including Finnish, Ukrainian, Slovenian, Slovakian, Romanian, Hebrew, Turkish, Azerbaijani. Wow, it's like, it must be like painting the fourth bridge. You know, you, know, you must be organising the next one before you've even got the data in for the first one. Yeah, we start in March because there's obviously a lot of people who have got areas they want to explore and we want to make sure that we have questions that are relevant to people who live in Africa or India or Scandinavia. And so we move with the ties, but we try and address those issues of public health significance. Typically questionnaire, you know, government questionnaires, census type questionnaires are the same, you know, decade after decade. But yours is yours is responsive and organic, isn't it? So tell us how you build a build a questionnaire. So every year we have a core set of questions which include a drug screen, some basic demographics, who you are, what you do. And for all of the major drugs, we ask the same questions every year. How much, how often do you turn up to the emergency department? How much do you pay? Where do you get it from? But then within the survey every year, we have four or five specialist sections right. where we reach out to experts. And so for the last two or three years, we've done a lot of work on medicinal cannabis. We've done work on CBD. We've done work on the therapeutic aspects of psychedelics. And that has been driven by a desire to help active clinical researchers in the field and policymakers um, to have better information. Um, and we listen to what people think are important. So we have an excellent criminologist who works with us every year. And every other year, she has a whole section on policing to try mm -hmm. and explore how policing can, you know, make drug harm worse, but in some cases can help people reduce harm. So we try to listen and then we talk to lots of people, then we draft the survey, pilot it, correct it, and then it goes out to translation in 18 different languages. Wow. And I gather you're so uh, responsive that you're actually you know, setting up something to do with the coronavirus. Yeah. So, I mean, very early on, we recognised that COVID was going to have an impact on drug supply and how people were using drugs. And uh, there's a lot of surveys out there at the moment exploring this, which is fantastic because we need to learn from that data. What we're choosing to focus on is the impact on mental health, well-being, relationships at home. And then we want to explore if people have increased or decreased their use of different drugs. We want to know the reasons why. And we want to know the consequences because I think most people will assume if you're using more drugs during lockdown, the consequence will be negative. And I don't believe that will be the case. I think, as always, there will be functional, informed use of different substances. But I think my worry clinically is that people will be displacing to more risky drugs. And certainly when it comes to alcohol, consumption is going to go up and that's going to cause problems. As you might imagine that the lockdown, which I guess pretty much all the countries that you inquire of have brought into place, that, that, that would actually reduce people's access to drugs, wouldn't it? Well, there's the dark net, there's postal services. Mm -hmm. I, I think for people who are non-problematic users, where their drug use is very social, I think for lots of people, they will use that as an opportunity to step back and have a break. Mm -hmm. But I also think that for some people, drugs can replace social connection. And if you're someone who's particularly anxious or finding that social isolation difficult, then there'll be drugs, whether they be dissociatives like ketamine or depressants like benzos or alcohol, that people may be looking to to medicate mm. that distress. And that obviously has concerns. So this survey will come out when? 
So we're launching in the UK on May the 1st uh, and in Germany on May the 3rd and the rest of the world on about May the 5th. And our plan is to run it every four to six weeks to actually track a cohort of people over time. Mm -hmm. Because I think early adaptions to your drug use in the first month or so are not necessarily going to be what you choose to do three or four months down the line. Mm. And we want to also track how different cultures respond. So I've spoken to someone in France who has said a lot of French people they knew are drinking less because they're not socialising, they're not having wine with dinner. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. So the, the idea that you you kind of get us, give us a sort of rolling, moving average of what's going on is uh, important because uh, we get a lot of snapshots. But a lot of people assume that once... Uh, the lockdown is over, job done. But I, I, I can't imagine that's going to be true for, for the people who've, uh, who use drugs. So I think, you know, the situation may get worse in some ways and better in others. And it's good that you're going to monitor it. Absolutely. And I think there'll be aspects to drug treatment that will also change as a result of lockdown, probably for the better for more autonomy for people receiving opiate substitution treatment, perhaps more unsupervised doses, which can allow them to get on with their lives and not be tied going to a pharmacy every day. You and I understand what we're talking about here, Adam, but do you want to just elaborate on on that? So, So for most people who are in treatment for heroin dependence, it requires them to go to a clinic or a pharmacy normally every day to receive their methadone or buprenorphine, which are substitute drugs, which suppress your craving for heroin, um, and, and to take them every day. And normally people aren't given many doses of methadone to take away with them into the community because methadone taken by someone who's not used to using it can kill them. But with the need to support physical distancing, one response has to be to give people many more doses of methadone to take away. That will be a really positive thing for COVID and will be positive for people who don't want to be forced to go to the chemist every day. But there is the risk that with more methadone in the community, there might be more diversion. That is methadone seeping to people who aren't tolerant, potentially with risks. But the other big change is, David, is I can see my patients online. You know, the number of patients who don't turn up to your appointments because they can't get the bus, they don't have money for transport. Well, maybe in future, most of the time, they can just log in and I can say hi on the phone or on Zoom, and they have better engagement and they have more freedom to get on with their lives. That's a positive thing. Yeah, no, it's good that, to, to, to try to find some positives out of this uh, this lockdown, isn't it? So let, let's talk about the survey now. So what are the biggest changes you've seen in the 10 years you've been doing it? I think when we first started it, I think we were knee-deep in a decade of stimulants. But mm-hmm. that was a decade that had started with very poor quality cocaine and MDMA. So 2010, you know, there was hardly any MDMA about because there were no precursors. Cocaine purity around much of the world was 5, 10, 20%. But people loved their stimulants. And I think as the decade progressed, we had better purity MDMA, better purity coke, they became better value for money. And I think actually that was partly in response to the appearance of novel psychoactive drugs such as methadrone, which I think were a threat to the traditional stimulant market. But I think as the first decade of the millennium came to an end, I think we have moved into a decade of predominantly psychedelic drugs. And I'm hoping that might be partly reflecting people's interest in using drugs that are less ego-driven and have an interest in the world around you. But also I think there's a positive because they're generally much safer. And I quite like the idea of people moving away from stimulant drugs, which 
can cause, you know, heart problems, give you strokes and mm -hmm. accelerates brain disease to a group of drugs like psychedelics, which don't lend themselves to dependence, which don't mm -hmm. lend themselves to overabuse, but which can have profoundly positive effects. And so I think that's quite reassuring. And the other big shift, I think, has been the changes in the cannabis market, not just from illegal to legal, but in the huge variations of products, particularly more potent products, whether that's concentrates or resin. Mm. So we're having to deal with another commercialized drug that has dependence. And it's going to be interesting over the next four or five years to see how governments make sure cannabis doesn't become another tobacco or alcohol. Yeah, it's interesting because you, you obviously your survey spans countries where cannabis is legal, even recreational cannabis is legal, and, and those where it isn't. So you've, you've got some nice comparative data there, I guess. And, and, and I think what we would see is that in the US and Canada, there's a lot more people using edibles. They have very high rates of vaping, very low rates of concurrent tobacco use, which yeah. is amazing. But if you look at the Netherlands, which has had effectively legalized cannabis for 40 mm -hmm. years, they have some of the highest rates of tobacco use with cannabis in the world. They don't ever seem to have thought about mm. promoting non-tobacco routes of use. So I think the legal status of a drug can help inform how people use it, but it's actually the culture and conversations that a country allows their population to have that I think is the real key, which is why I worry about the UK changing their drug laws because our conversations are so poor that change the laws tomorrow, moderation is not a British thing. That's probably the best way of summarising it. There may be people who don't fully understand the implications of smoking cannabis with or without tobacco. So I think one of the old arguments is that cannabis is a gateway drug. And many people would just dismiss that. But of course, the truth is cannabis is a gateway drug. It's a gateway drug to tobacco. And in terms of the things that's going to ruin your life and take years of your life, tobacco is by far and away the most harmful thing when you're smoking a joint. What we also know is that if you're someone who smokes cannabis or tobacco, you're more likely to become dependent on both. It's harder to quit either substance and your overall harms are much greater. So if you're able to get a country to think about vaping or edibles or using preparations that don't require tobacco, that from a public health perspective is just an amazing thing. And that should be embraced. And there was an opportunity, I think, with a regulated market mm. to push that. And I don't think we've embraced that as much. Maybe because lots of the big cannabis companies have got investment from tobacco. And that's where money always makes good harm reduction difficult. One of the things I've always been impressed about your, uh, your survey and the output is the, the way you've tried to educate people about alcohol. Uh, so I guess very early on, we wanted a way of saying thank you to the hundreds of thousands of people who took part in the survey. And so every year we would produce a free harm reduction resource, whether it was an app or guidelines. And the first one we did was um, our drinks meter app, which is now, I think, in version three. Um, and it was a way of giving people personalized information about their drinking that dismantled the fairy tales that we all tell ourselves about a behavior that we know is a little bit harmful. So the first fairy tale we tell ourselves is, I know what I do is a bit harmful, I've got better genes than everyone else. I'm really fit and healthy. And that means that you don't put things in place to reduce your risk of harm. And the drinks meter will adjust 
your vulnerability to drinking by effectively taking a medical history. Mm. People don't like that. It's uncomfortable. We compare your drinking to everybody else because people will say, well, all my mates get drunk on a Friday and Saturday. I'm just like everyone else. It's like, no, you're not like everyone else. You're just like your mates who you choose <laughs> to keep yourself comfortable. <laughs> and then the final thing is that there is still stigma and shame about putting your hand up and saying, I think I might be using too much. So the Drinks Meter app is basically an anonymous, confidential way of getting feedback around your drinking. It's personalized. And then it'll give you a way of setting yourself some goals and allowing you to reduce your drinking while still enjoying it. And nothing that we do says, stop doing this. It's about, think about using a bit less because the truth is, the people who get most pleasure from drinking and drugs are those people who don't use it that often. It's a bargain. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, you don't get tolerance and uh, you don't get the, the, any, the, anything like the negative uh, health consequences. Yeah. That's true of all drugs, would you say? Yeah, I think so. But I think the only drugs that seem to have that inbuilt into their pharmacotinic kinetics or di dynamics uh, are, are the psychedelic drugs. Mm. You become stupidly tolerant to LSD after three or mm. four days. Mm. And we know most people might use them four or five times a year. And they often wait till they've integrated the experience before they move on. It is bizarre for a drug that is so profound and so positive that it's not a drug of abuse, but it's not. Well, of course, it's still classified as highly dangerous schedule one drugs in the UN conventions. But, uh, but that sure isn't science, is it? <laughs> No, but then there's a lot of vaccination against um, evidence resistance is what I would call it. So, um, yeah, I mean, listen, hopefully the generation may be listening to this who will hopefully run the country in a decade or two will remember your words. Have you ever had any uh, dialogue with the UN or the WHO? I mean, are they, do they follow what you do? Yeah, we, we supply the UN World Drug Report every year with our data on crypto markets. So we've been tracking... Sorry, what, what are those? Ah, uh, so the dark, dark net markets. So mm -hmm. we start. Uh, so things like the Silk Road. So we started tracking those in 2012, and so we have one of the largest tracking databases of people using the dark net for different drugs uh, in the world. And we provide that data to the UN every year. The takeaway message being, there's in many countries a year-on-year -year increase in people accessing drugs on the dark net because of convenience, product quality, vendor rating. Um, and the range of drugs that you can get. And it's safer than scoring drugs in the street. So what would, what's your latest estimate of what proportion of drugs are, are come from that source? Uh, so it's a non-probability sample. This is not reflective of the general population. Uh -huh. And I, I also think that it attracts a particular group of people who may, A, have access to the internet, and who might be interested in getting some slightly more unusual drugs. I mean, in, in the UK last year, for respondents to the Global Drug Survey, about 20% mm -hmm. of people said that they had either bought drugs on the dark net or had used drugs that had been accessed from the dark net. It's higher than that, 20%. Wow. Mm -hmm. But of course, lots of people may be getting drugs from friends who have bought them on the dark mm -hmm. net. And I would imagine as COVID impacts on local drug supply, there will mm -hmm. definitely be more people shopping online because the postman will deliver your drugs. Yeah, and I guess there's going to be less screening as well <laughs> at, the, at the level of, you know, the, the customs, I suppose. You know, people have got other things on their mind. Yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah there's a sort of sense, I suppose, that, you know, you've already intimated that the drug survey is, a, is done by people who have got computers, who are interested in drugs and want to communicate sort of positive things. You know, they want to or help other people who use drugs. I mean, 
to what extent is it generalizable to all drug use, do you think? I think within a cohort of people who use a particular drug, we can look at differences between risks and benefits between people who use more and less of a drug. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we have a very wide spectrum of people who use cocaine from people who are using, you know, 200 times a year to people who are using once or twice. And three quarters of people use cocaine 10 times or less a year. I'd say that's probably pretty representative mm. of the wider population. And we have published a paper that looked at the characteristics of cannabis users who take part in global drug survey with cannabis users who take part in national household surveys. And they were remarkably similar. But I think where our strength lies is being able to spot new drug trends, identify risks related to particular patterns of use, and being able to ask questions that requires an awful lot of people who have used a particular drug. So, for example, nitrous oxide. Mm. If, you want to ask, if you want to find out whether nitrous oxide can really cause nerve damage, you need tens of thousands of people, and we can get that. Yeah, and, you, and you also you have, you have the advantage, um, you can look at the differences between uh, males and females as well, which I think you've done on some occasions. Yeah, so, so one of the things we consistently look at is the risk of people seeking emergency medical treatment mm. every year. And one of the very consistent findings across virtually all stimulant drugs is that women have a much higher rate of seeking emergency medical treatment with drugs like cocaine, amphetamines, and MDMA than men. And we initially thought that was perhaps something to do with how they were using it or maybe body weight. But in mm. fact, we've looked at that and it's not the case. There is something much more basic to do with physiology and hormones mm -hmm. that makes women more sensitive to adverse effects of stimulants. And we can then get messages out saying, you know, women need to be more careful when particularly dosing with a drug like MGMA or more recently with a drug like GHB, where one in three women who had used GHB in the last year reported passing out. And in terms wow. of a risk for being a victim of sexual assault, that's a huge issue. We are, we are different in our risks and both age groups and genders mm. need to be aware of that. What was very striking was your, 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 um, your MDMA your ecstasy data, wasn't it? When young, particularly under, what, under, was it under 25-year-old women? Yeah, so, so they, I mean, their risk of, so normally for most people, it's about 1% of people seek emergency medical treatment in the last year. But for young women under the age of 25, it was something like 3.5%. So there's a, a marked difference for young women. And, you know, it could come, it may have something to do with the fact that perhaps young women aren't buying their drugs, they're being given them by people they don't know, so they're not aware of the strength. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the advice you get given as a little kid about sweeties I think not taking drugs from strangers yeah. um, is a really good bit of advice as well. And, and that's, I think, particularly within festival settings where I worry about people being given lines of a white powder being told it's cocaine. But it's not. It's ketamine, which then yeah. leaves you, you know, catatonic, mute and vulnerable. And that's why probably the single most important harm reduction strategy for anybody is make sure you use drugs around people you trust who are there to keep an eye on you. Because when things mm, go wrong, mm, it's mm. your friends who will look out for you. Quite. There are two great fears in my mind about the future of, of drugs. I mean, one of the fentanyls and the other the synthetic cannabinoids and the, you know, the rise of spice. And you've done some research on this. Can you just share that with us, please? Absolutely. So we first started researching 
these drugs in about 2012. And the first thing we identified was a far higher risk of seeking emergency medical treatment with synthetic cannabinoid products than natural cannabis. So for most people, the risk of seeking emergency medical treatment is at least 30 times higher with synthetic cannabis products like Spice than with high-potency natural cannabis. That equates to the risk of people who have used more than 50 times in the last year, one in eight of those people seeking emergency medical treatment. And that's because they are much more potent, they're more unpredictable. And because they're more potent and they are full receptor agonists, that means the more you take, the more off your face you get, is that there's also a much higher dependence risk. And so what we're seeing is a more significant and physical withdrawal among dependent users. And in the current climate, with COVID leading to a reduction in synthetic cannabinoid drugs being available to marginalised vulnerable populations, I worry that that group going through withdrawal may choose to displace two drugs like heroin or benzodiazepines, which of course carry the risk of fatal overdose. And and, and is that withdrawal the same as cannabis? Or is it sort of tired and fatigued and uh, loss of appetite? Or are there differences as, as there are with the acute intoxication effect of these spice compounds? It's much more physical. So okay. people report sweating, severe aches and pains, vomiting, yeah. significant insomnia, restlessness, craving as you get with cannabis. But mm. it's much more intense and therefore drives people to use to mm. relieve that withdrawal distress. And complicating the use of these drugs is that they're no longer just um, smoked, dissolved onto herbal products, but are now available as vape devices, can mm. be dissolved onto paper and vaped. Mm. And, you know, patients, you know, drop in front of you or become very aggressive and, and psychotic. It, it can be very frightening for them and those people around them. Quite, quite. And I guess there's no real solution other than to have testing or make cannabis freely available. <laughs> you know that, that, that making cannabis freely available would have been a solution in 2012 yeah. and was probably the option New Zealand should have opted for instead of them deciding to regulate the synthetic cannabinoids. Mm. We, we actually ask people and have done for the last two or three years for the very tiny percentage, it's about 4% of people who prefer synthetic cannabis to natural cannabis, we asked them, if cannabis was now made legal in your country, would you stop using? And the answer is no, because those mm. people are now so dependent that it's that, it's the CB1 receptor activation they want. They want that potency. So legal weed ain't going to be a solution to synthetic mm. cannabis now. We, we missed that boat. We missed it, yeah. And again, I think that's, you're probably going to say the same when we talk about the fentanyls, aren't you? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the fentanyls just offer more bang for buck, but more importantly, the most incredible profit margin for people who want to export smaller bulk for larger profit. Could you just maybe just allow, yeah, explain to the uninitiated what a fentanyl is, please? So, so uh, fentanyl is a synthetic, so man-made, very potent type of heroin, if you will, but which can be between 100 and 10,000 times more potent than heroin. It's almost impossible to think how much stronger it is. But what it means is that if you have heroin that has the smallest amount of fentanyl in, a user who would normally be fine injecting a bit of heroin might overdose and die entirely unpredictably. And 
it's very difficult to mix fentanyl with heroin in a way where the fentanyl is equally distributed. It's, it's, imagine you have 100 white ping pong balls and you have one black ping pong ball that you put in to that bucket. It's impossible to mix that in a fair and equitable way. So um, that places huge risk for people. I mean, as a result of the huge spike in fentanyl overdoses in the US, which led to a lot of police crawling over the dark net to try and remove fentanyl. A lot of sellers have voluntarily removed fentanyl from dark net shops, which has been a good thing. But you don't need much fentanyl in an area to cause death and mayhem. Do people know enough about what they're taking to even be able to report this on, in, in your survey? We ask people if they've ever used a synthetic version of Oh. cannabis stimulants and with and if they say yes we can then break it down and ask whether it's been carfentanil what what sort of drug it's a small group of people but there are a group of people who are particularly interested in pushing their cognitive boundaries by mm. using novel drugs um and potency is attractive to some people but we've seen it with you know um potent hallucinogens such as the M-bone drugs, mm, which were mm. being sold as LSD, but in fact were causing all sorts of problems. I, I think the reality is, and we explored this a few years ago, is that most people, given the choice of a good quality traditional drug over any synthetic variant, will just take good quality traditional drugs. And that's probably the only way we're going to stop synthetics causing real havoc, because the biggest threat to the traditional drug market is synthetics. The mm. biggest threat to opium, uh, opium fields is fentanyl. Mm. Quite, quite. Well, let's look at a brighter note. I mean, uh, uh, you've pointed out already that, uh, that psychedelics are unduly vilified because people assume that they're addictive when they're not, and you've been able to pick that data up quite powerfully from your survey. But uh, I just want to share with the listeners a, a question, a couple of questions we put into the one about two years ago, wasn't it? The when we looked, we asked about altered um, color perception following the use of psychedelics, and uh, and that was that turned out to be a really remarkable data set, a unique data set, which we're writing up now, uh, and I think it'll be published in the next month or so. And there's no doubt that some people find that their color vision is improved after they've taken psilocybin or LSD, and and this impact can be quite enduring and also really quite positive. People can can appreciate art <laughs> in a way they couldn't before. So I want to thank you for that, for uh, showing that the, some drug use can even have positive impact rather than uh, simply be looking at different levels of harm reduction. I, th I think for most people, most of the time, their use of drugs will be associated with pleasure and positive effects. And, and if I had to finish on a positive note, what I would say is the vast majority of people who use drugs do so moderately, pretty safely, with a high level of concern for their health and well-being and an interest in looking out for their mates. And probably the thing I was happiest ever writing was something called the Global Drug Survey Highway Code, which was a harm reduction guide voted for by people who use drugs. And the tagline was, safer drug use is more enjoyable drug use. And I genuinely believe that. If you want to take drugs and enjoy them, safety is not a compromise. It's a way of enhancing pleasure. And that's like eating pizza and losing weight. 
brilliant point on which to end. Uh, uh, when you crack the pizza weight one as well, come back to me then. Right? <laughs> <laughs> sadly, sadly, safer drug use is better than pizza for weight, losing weight. Adam, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I also want to say one other thing. I want to thank you for being a, a long-lasting and, and reliable member of the Drug Science Scientific Team. We've, we've, uh, we've very much appreciate your contributions and support over the years. It's a pleasure being part of it, David. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation as much as I did. Adam has clearly done a huge amount to help people understand what drug use is about. But I think more importantly, to uh, also develop strategies to educate people about how to minimize the harms of drugs. And some of the insights in the Global Drug Survey, particularly in relation to the potential harms to young women for taking stimulants like MDMA, have, uh, have had profound implications for the way we educate our young people about drug use. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, remember to talk to your friends and family and share it with them, tweet about it. And if you can, please go onto our website, which is drugscience.org.uk. You can hear the, all the rest of the podcast there. But you can also sign up to be a member of our community. And, and the drug science community is one of the core ways in which drug science is able to put on podcasts like this. If you become a member of the community, you will support all our endeavors. And hopefully, you'll have a chance to meet me in person at some point. Thank you very much. Thank you.